Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, and welcome to Heels in the Courtroom. I'm Liz Lenovey, and today I am joined by Amy Gunn. Hello. It is just the two of us today, but that's all right. We're very excited to talk to you all today on this particular subject, which I feel has been coming up more and more recently. And it feels like it's something that has affected my practice the older I get and the more experience I get. And that is requests from the media. And I think as attorneys, the general public is always very interested in what's going on in the law. Oftentimes it comes up with criminal cases. There's several high profile criminal cases and people always want statements from the attorneys or from the defendant or the victim's family, whatever the key players are. But sometimes in civil litigation, that issue comes up as well. There's very high profile civil litigation cases and people will want comments. Sometimes, though, I've had journalists reach out to me just to comment on a general legal topic. Maybe they want someone who has some sort of specialized knowledge. But the The particular reason I thought about this topic was because of something that at least I think is pretty funny that recently happened to Amy. So, Amy, maybe you could tell our listeners about this anecdote. So I actually, Liz and I both are involved in a federal case where our state has sued China and various Chinese entities for covid And we were hired by clients to file what's known as an amicus brief. The goal would be to educate the court on whatever issue is before it. And in this particular case, it's international service of process and whether, in fact, a state can sue China. So we entered our appearance and have filed a few briefs, but that's really all. So I got an email from a Reuters reporter indicating that she was looking to cover some of the lawsuits against China regarding the COVID virus. A lot of the federal pleadings are public if you have a login number. So she has that. And she indicated that I was listed as counsel of record for the People's Republic of China. And I thought, wow, that could be significant for a number of reasons. So I didn't know that. And I went online and in fact, it had gotten entered in incorrectly by the clerk of the court when we entered our appearance that I was the lawyer on behalf of China. So I very quickly let the reporter know, in fact, China was not my client and then had the clerk fix it in the system. But for a second there, it was a little bit, (laughs) I couldn't understand why I was getting this email. What's so interesting about filing an amicus brief? And yeah, I guess if there's a lawyer in town representing China, it could be interesting, but that's a recent media contact. That would be a fascinating decision too, by the Communist Party of China to hire an attorney in St. Louis, Missouri. Yeah, Amy Gunn. (laughs) Amy Gunn, that sounds good. (laughs) Internationally renowned Amy (laughs) But that story, which Amy told me about, and of course I got a good chuckle out of once it was fixed on the court's website, got me thinking, well, what are sort of the tips or tricks or pitfalls for lawyers talking to journalists? And I thought, well, maybe the best place to start would be the rules. Are there any rules on this? I'm sure there are. Always are. Yeah. As attorneys, we are bound by ethical rules. And so I took a look. 
And the ABA, the American Bar Association, actually has a rule on trial publicity, and it's Rule 3.6. And so if you'll bear with me, I'm just going to read through the rule because I thought it was pretty interesting. And the rule starts, Part A. A lawyer who is participating or has participated in the investigation or litigation of a matter shall not make an extrajudicial statement that the lawyer knows or reasonably should know will be disseminated by means of public communication and will have a substantial likelihood of materially prejudicing an adjudicative proceeding in the matter. Part B. Notwithstanding Part A, a lawyer may state, one, the claim, offense, or defense involved and accept when prohibited by law the identity of the persons involved. Two, information contained in a public record. Three, that an investigation of a matter is in progress. Four, the scheduling or result of any step in litigation. Five, a request for assistance in obtaining evidence and information necessary thereto. Six, a warning of danger concerning behavior of a person involved when there is reason to believe that there exists the likelihood of substantial harm to an individual or to the public interest, and seven, in a criminal case, in addition to subparagraphs one through six, one, the identity, residence, occupation, and family status of the accused, two, if the accused has not been apprehended, information necessary to aid in apprehension of that person, Three, the fact, time, and place of arrest. And four, the identity of investigating and arresting officers or agencies and the length of the investigation. Part C. Notwithstanding Part A, a lawyer may make a statement that a reasonable lawyer would believe is required to protect a client from the substantial undue prejudicial effect of recent publicity not initiated by the lawyer or the lawyer's client. A statement made pursuant to this paragraph shall be limited to such information as is necessary to mitigate the recent adverse publicity. Part D. No lawyer associated in a firm or government agency with a lawyer subject to paragraph A shall make a statement prohibited by paragraph A. So that's a lot of rules. Oh, my goodness. That is a lot of rules. And I feel like when I was going through that, I thought most of this seems like it applies to criminal cases. Like it seems really important in criminal cases. And obviously that's because you want to protect both the rights of the defendant, but also the rights and probably the privacy of the victim in that case. But I think that there are important things to pull out of that if you are doing civil litigation work like we do as far as what you can say. And in particular, what I thought was particularly important was that part A about what you cannot say. And I feel like the language is pretty deliberate, but also kind of vague. So that's something that you have to really put a lot of consideration to when we're making any type of statement that could be publicly disseminated. However, I did not stop there in looking at the rule. No, you did not. Of course I didn't. And I went to the comment, which it always provides a little bit of extra helpful information that maybe you're not sure of just based on the first reading of the rule. And I don't want to read the entire comment because it is sort of lengthy. But what I think is important as far as the comment goes is the very first paragraph starts, it is difficult to strike a balance between protecting the right to a fair trial and safeguarding the right of free expression. Preserving the right to a fair trial necessarily entails some curtailment of the information that may be disseminated about a party prior to trial, particularly where trial by jury is involved. 
If there were no such limits, the result would be practical nullification of the protective effect of the rules of forensic decorum and the exclusionary rules of evidence. On the other hand, there are vital social interests served by the free dissemination of information about events having legal consequences and about legal proceedings themselves. The public has a right to know about threats to its safety and measures aimed at assuring its security. It also has a legitimate interest in the conduct of judicial proceedings, particularly in matters of general public concern. Furthermore, the subject matter of legal proceedings is often of direct significance in debate and deliberation over questions of public policy. And in reading that comment, something that has come up recently with the courts and then was leaked to the news is Justice Alito's decision potentially overturning Roe v. Wade. And so that's something that I know that that's not a lawyer's statement, but it kind of goes to the heart of what this comment is. The idea that the courts and the legal system play such an important role in just the day-to-day lives of people and that the general public wants to know and in many cases has a right to know about these things. So the comment continues, in particular, part five of the comment talks more about criminal trials. Again, again, when you think about these statements of the media, criminal cases always seem to come top of mind. Again, they can be very salacious. The public has a great interest in them. The comment actually notes that Civil litigation is probably a little bit less important than criminal. I mean, it says (laughs) there are, on the other hand, certain subjects that are more likely than not to have a material prejudicial effect on the proceeding. Actually, and paragraph six in the comment actually specifically says civil trials may be less sensitive. So the comment recognizes that this is something that we as civil practitioners probably don't have to deal with as much as those that do criminal law. However, it continues, the rule will still place limitations on prejudicial comments in these cases but the likelihood of prejudice may be different depending on the type of proceeding. So again, it's the classic lawyer answer of it depends. Right. So I would highly recommend before you give any type of statement to a journalist, to media, just to take a look at that ABA rule, take a look at the comment, read it in its entirety, and make sure that you understand what it is that the person is asking you to comment on and how much you can actually divulge. And so with that in mind, Amy, I'd love to talk to you about your experiences in speaking with media, because I know that you have talked both as an attorney of record in the case, talking about a specific case that you have been asked to comment on, but also just sort of what I think is more of just a legal expert, sort of on a panel. You've done that a couple of times. So I have two principles when it comes to media requests. The first is I need to understand the subject, whether it is the case that I'm actually involved in or just a request to educate a reporter on a particular area of law. I'm never going to call a reporter back and say, I just Googled this area of law. I think I'm an expert on it now because you're going to sound ridiculous. So number one is I need to truly be an expert in that particular area of law. And number two, if it is request for a comment about a case, I need to have my client's permission. Even in a general sense, I'm not that comfortable talking to the press without my client because even though a lot of the things that you're going to talk about are in the public realm and are public knowledge based on public filings of pleadings, I don't want any trust that my client has in me diminished by this act that I've made. So those are the two things. So taking the first thing, just asking for a comment about something, again, I'm going to have to know something about it. So I got a call actually just yesterday 
from a reporter asking about a particular mass tort litigation. And it's clearly that she just wants to understand more about the litigation and some general principles of it. I have no problem calling her back and kind of giving her that. You have to know, though, and be very clear about whether you're talking on the record or on background only. And I use those words not because I don't trust the reporter. It's just I don't want to be unclear. Can you explain to our listeners what those two phrases mean? Yes. And I will do so based on my knowledge. If I'm wrong, please write in. But on the record is literally anything you say can be repeated in an article or in your voice. Oftentimes, depending on what kind of state you're in, somebody can record you with or without your knowledge, again, whether you're a one-party state or a two-party state. I think most reporters will ask you, can I record this? And you have to be ready to say yes or no. Even if it's not being technically recorded, oftentimes when I'm talking to a reporter, you can hear the clicking. They're trying to literally get an exact quote, which again, if you're comfortable with that and you don't mind being quoted, that's fine. But you need to know that before you start talking. If you say this is background only, my understanding is they're not using your name. They can say something like a lawyer source of mine or a lawyer close to the case or I don't know, whatever phrase they use. And I am most comfortable, quote, on background only, because really I want to be in a position where I educate a journalist or an educate a reporter because I want that reporting to be accurate for the public. You know, so much of what we do in the plaintiff's world gets misconstrued and we're the villains. I don't want to contribute to that. I don't want to be that stereotype. I don't want to say ridiculous things. And I want the reporter, the journalist to be educated on the impact of things and the actual law. I can think back over the years. You and I, Liz, have done interviews on the radio. I've done interviews on television. I've been quoted by reporters. I've been background source on reporters. And I think it's important, and they could be a resource for us. If we have a big verdict and you have a relationship with a reporter or a journalist, reach out and say, hey, this is a great case to report on. Again, we're going to be clear about Rule 3.6, but I can be a resource for the journalist. The journalist can be a resource for me. I think it's important to have a good relationship with a couple. And sometimes we'll get a call and it's really an area that I don't know that much about and I pass. And that's okay too. Yeah, that happened to me a couple months ago. Someone actually was doing some sort of report on domestic violence. And I had written my journal comment on it and it was published. And so they had read my comment, which at the time I had done extensive research on Missouri law. I thought I was an expert in gun laws in Missouri and domestic violence and family courts. And then six years later, I had forgotten pretty much everything that I right. had written. So much happens. And they called me and asked if I could give a comment. And I told them, no, I really can't. But what I can do is refer you to people who are experts. Right. And I gave them the names of some people that I really respect and really trust to do a good job with the type of information that this reporter seemed to be seeking. And so that's something I've had to do a couple of times. If someone reaches out to me and I'm just not an expert on that topic, I will always try to give the name of someone who I think will do a good job of it. Exactly. But Amy, your second principle of talking with the client, 
I'm actually glad you brought that up because that is an easy way for me to segue in an article that I found by these two attorneys with Dentons, and I'll cite them here, Sherry Clevins and Alana Clare. They are attorneys out of the D.C. office in Dentons, and they wrote an article called No Comment, Tips for Talking to the Media. This was published in March of last year, but one of the items that these authors cite is Rule 1.4A2 of the ABA Model Rules of Professional Conduct, which requires a lawyer to, quote, reasonably consult with the client about the means by which the client's objectives are to be accomplished, unquote, and these authors say, which can include a media plan. And so that's something that's really important. It's not just a personal principle, but it also seems to be a rule of you need to contact the client. There you go. (laughs) And the article continues with some other tips for lawyers seeking to speak to the media and pursue the types of things that you've talked about, educating the public and educating reporters and making sure that information is disseminated correctly, but also always protecting your client. Nothing comes before the obligation we have to our clients. And so it can be very difficult to strike that balance. But This article, I think, did a really great job of laying out the different things to consider. And I would highly recommend you read the entire article, look it up. It's Googleable. But one of the things that they do mention is to check the rules. We're always going to go back to the rules. And they specifically say each court or judge may have a standing order addressing public statements to the media. If a course of action violates a gag order or any other standing order, the lawyer may be sanctioned by the court or the bar for making public statements, even if the lawyer's statements otherwise comply with the rules of professional conduct in the absence of the gag order. So again, make sure you're following the rules, whether it's this general 3.6 or 1.4, make sure you're following the rules within whatever court you're at. And then they also, again, emphasize communicating with the client. I don't know if I've ever had a case like this that's been particularly high profile and the journalist wanted a statement from the client specifically, but I imagine that there are lots of cases like that. How do you or would you navigate a case that you think might have some media attention to it? I am loath to take on any media, be it print or otherwise, on a case just because it gets filed. So I think we see that a lot in our profession where you file a lawsuit and then somebody issues a press release and they try to get some media attention and it's a big deal. Really, any lawyer can file a lawsuit. I mean, you pay your filing fee, you have a license, you file the lawsuit. That means nothing to me. But we see that a lot in our profession. I don't see any reason, unless you're trying to garner attention I don't know. I won't comment on all the reasons why people do that, but I don't really see any reason for there to be media before a trial. Things change after a trial. I think if you are in a trial and let's say you win, then there's lots of things to talk about. And that could include your client speaking. It's going to depend on whether he or she or they are comfortable with that. It would make me nervous period. You still have to appeal the case. I don't know all the things that could go wrong, but it would make me nervous because I hold that nervousness anytime that I actually have a conversation about it, even after the case. But I would leave it up to them. And I would certainly sit with them or be on the call with them. I think a reporter or journalist would rather talk to the actual client than the lawyer. Just that would be more interesting. People have certain expectations or stereotypes about lawyers. It would be more impactful or compelling from a client. But I would talk to the client about that. I had a case, it's in litigation, 
It had some publicity shortly after the incident happened. I was getting calls. Other plaintiff's attorneys in the same litigation were speaking in the press and doing all this. I asked my client, what would you like to do? My client says, nothing. Do you agree? And I said, absolutely. The answer is no comment. And that was in stark contrast to my other colleagues. And I believe my client appreciated that. So I think pre-trial publicity is an entirely different thing than post-trial publicity. But I think after trial, because again, public system, open courts, everything that was testified to, the jury's verdict, of course, not their deliberations or the identity of the jurors, but the verdict is now out there in the public. And I don't have that same fear about breaching confidentiality or influencing the court or the jury after trial, of course, that I would beforehand. So I think publicity after the trials, if it's requested, I don't have any heartburn over that. I agree. I think that there is such a risk of potential harm or maybe tainting your jury pool if you talk with media that I think it has to be a very calculated decision and you have to really understand the risks and weigh the risks of all the harms it could do to your case before you say anything prior to the trial. The last article that I wanted to cite, because I tried to do a little bit of research before I came into this recording, but this is an article that was published in the ABA Journal, and it was by Julie Sobowal in October of 16, and the title is Tips on Getting Your Message Across to the Media. And what she does is lay out some general advice on how to effectively communicate to the media as an attorney, because I think that a problem that we often have is that lawyers talk like lawyers. We don't know how to talk to the general public. And, yeah. you know, we've got the episodes on lawyer brain. Can you stop it? And it's funny because something that we have to do is be able to talk like normal people to the jury. Right. We have talked on this podcast about making sure that we connect with the jury and that they see us as normal people and not lawyers. <laughs> But that might be something that gets lost when you're in a situation where someone is grilling you with questions. I think we automatically go to where we feel the most comfortable, and that is speaking like attorneys. And that may not be an effective form of communication. So I thought that Ms. Sobowal's article on tips on getting your message across to the media was very helpful in just giving some, again, just some general helpful advice. And it starts the very first sentence. Speak in plain language. <laughs> be familiar with the topic at hand. Keep your comments short and sweet. And while these tips may sound simple, dealing with the media can involve certain nuances. And putting these guidelines into practice gives lawyers an advantage in courting coverage. And she actually goes on to interview a war correspondent for The Washington Post, who was also a former legal correspondent for Reuters. And again, I think that this just gives some really great advice. It's a quick read that would be helpful for any attorney to just take a look over before you talk to someone. And really what the article goes back to is just being prepared making sure you're prepared. And I think that sometimes what happens in our situations is we'll get a cold call and right. we'll pick up the call and someone wants to start asking questions immediately. And I think what is best in those situations is to deflect a little bit and maybe say, you know, now's not a great time for me to have an in-depth conversation with you. Why don't you tell me what it is that you're looking for and we can set up a time later. Once you have committed to talking with this journalist, whatever the topic is about, at least having some sort of prompt can help guide you and give you the 
opportunity to jot down a couple bullet points or maybe to do a little of your own research just to make sure that what you are reporting and what you are commenting on is accurate. So I think that it is risky to take a cold call like that and just start answering questions without having some preparation. When you said all that, it reminded me of this that happened a number of years ago, not too shortly after I switched from defense work to plaintiff's work. And I got a call from a local lawyer newspaper and I was flattered that I would be asked to comment. I thought, wow, this is exciting. So the question was about some litigation that I was not involved in and asking generally about what I think about that litigation. And my comment was basically like, it's not that great. (laughs) Or there's causation concerns or something along those lines. And I was like, all right, because it's what I thought. I mean, truly, it's what I thought about that particular litigation. And it gets published. It's like on the front page, above the fold. And I'm thinking, look at me. I get a call from another plaintiff's attorney ripping me a new blankety blank because I was critical of that litigation. And he saw it as very disloyal and just really called me out. And I've never forgotten that because I thought it was rude, frankly. He didn't go about it the right way, in my opinion, but he kind of did give me pause going forward because people read this stuff and it may just seem like a quick phone call with a reporter, but it does matter either in terms of, I know that comment didn't influence a decision that a judge made or a jury made. But it certainly influenced other plaintiff's attorneys who were trying to make cases in that particular litigation. So I do think I've taken that with me when I talk to reporters and before I just go shooting off, shooting off my mouth. (laughs) Yeah, that was fun. Well, it goes back to always be prepared. Always be prepared. Right. And I like the idea of think before you speak. Yes. Yes. And that's what we tell our clients and sometimes, you know, got to follow your own advice. We should. We should should do more of that probably. (laughs) Well, Amy, thank you so much for a great conversation. I appreciate all of your insights and your stories. Very quickly before we close out, something I do want to acknowledge because I realized it this morning is that today as we record is actually the two-year anniversary of our first episode release. Wow. May 6th of 2020, I believe was the first episode of Heels in the Courtroom. So it's been two years of recording. Time flies when you're having fun and there's a pandemic. (sighs) And there's a pandemic. (laughs) And I'm bummed that our fellow co-hosts weren't here with us, but I appreciate the conversation with you, Amy, and I appreciate all of you for listening and for tuning in for the last couple of months and sticking with us as we've gotten through just a really weird time. But new episodes of Heels in the Courtroom drop every Wednesday. And if you want to leave us a comment or leave us a question, you can reach out to us at heelsinthecourtroom.law. Thanks so much. Bye. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and subscribe today 